This is the Table for 10 Billion podcast from the World Bank Group. I'm Sarah Trino. This is the sound of pigs being fed in the English countryside. No matter where you are in the world, it would be pretty hard to imagine life without commercial and domestic interactions with animals. Animals play a huge role in human society and economics, from working mules and donkeys, to the vast global livestock industry, to the pets we have at home, and the animals we just happen upon in our daily lives in our urban and rural environments. And our treatment of them and our shared environment impacts our own health. COVID-19, as we all know, led to a global health emergency the like of which we hadn't seen before. It all but shut down normal life in many parts of the world, has increased inequalities and economic challenges, and tragically has killed millions. But while many of us are back to leading a fairly normal life, the next pandemic could already on the horizon. Since then, we've seen monkeypox resurfacing. We've seen uh, new outbreaks of, uh, of Ebola, of uh, Lassa fever. And so the next uh, pandemic could really be on the horizon. Human activity has accelerated the pace of new emerging and re-emerging disease. And the majority of pathogens infectious to people now are zoonotic. That means, just like COVID-19, they cross from animals to people. And this is one of the issues we'll be discussing today in the podcast. We'll be exploring a principle called One Health, and we'll be asking, why do so many human diseases have an animal origin? Rabies virus is is an ancient virus. Plague, for example, is a bacterial infection that um, has been with humans for, you know, at least centuries. Uh, But we're seeing the pace of emergence and really the impacts are increasing in a really concerning way. Why is it so critical to act on prevention? I think COVID-19 came as a, as a reminder that there was an unfinished uh, job and that we were again uh, trapped in this cycle of uh, panic and neglect. And we'll hear from Liberia about the One Health approach to challenges there. They go to the place, they fed the wood, the trees, and then they make charcoal. They even go to the forest and hunt the the wild animals for their survival. That's all coming up in the Table for 10 Billion podcast from the World Bank Group. I'm Catherine Michalaba, and I'm Principal Scientist for Health and Policy at EcoHealth Alliance and also a consultant at the World Bank. My area of focus is on looking at the links between biodiversity and health and operationalizing a One Health approach. I wanted to find out a bit of background as to why human and animal health are so interlinked and some of the history both of zoonotic disease and to One Health. So I started off by asking Catherine to explain a bit about the diseases that humans get, which are passed on from animals, and why that's increasing. We have viruses that have been with human societies for a long time. Rabies virus is is an ancient virus. Plague, for example, is a bacterial infection that um, has been with humans for, you know, at least centuries. Uh, But we're seeing the pace of emergence and really the impacts are increasing in a really concerning way. I would say it's also a very logical way because we see that 
with increased interactions between hu humans and animals and environment, wildlife habitats, the changes that we're making to those ecosystems and these, we see that there's this logical pathogen spillover. And one extremely pertinent example here is Ebola. I asked Catherine to explain a little bit about the connection between Ebola and the emergence of One Health as a principle. So the origins of One Health are actually very practical. So there was an Ebola outbreak uh, that was causing really severe declines in great apes. So chimpanzees, gorilla, this was very concerning to conservation experts. And we were seeing also that there was this co-occurrence of human cases around the time that these great apes were being affected. So this became a public health problem. This was a conservation problem. And a colleague noted that we, we can't look at these in isolation alone. There's only one health. We've had over 30 Ebola epidemics, probably more that just never went detected, never went reported. It got a lot of attention when there was the emergence in West Africa. This was the first time that it had been seen in West Africa and really you know, caused such severe loss of life huge development impacts, communities, families, individuals impacted. And I think, you know, we, we have this chance to look upstream and say, what were the conditions that allowed that event to occur in the prior 30 or so events that, that have been linked to Ebola virus? And, you know, we know there's a reservoir out there for Ebola virus. It's probably a bat based on the, the scientific evidence thus far. And we see other species can be impacted, sort of intermediate hosts for Ebola virus. And then it's really those close contacts with other species that allow for these spillover events to occur in humans. And when we have these epidemics occurring, we, we are you know, detecting them and directing resources the best way possible to, to treat patients, to prevent spread in human populations. But we're really missing that fundamental piece about what happens before the outbreak in humans. What are the signals in animals? What are the changes in our environment that might facilitate new interactions or changing ecosystems and ecosystem conditions. I think this missing piece is where we can really direct resources and attention, expertise to prevent epidemics at source. And is this historically true as well? Or are we seeing more of these kinds of infectious diseases because of the way we produce meat, for example. It is. And I, you know, I think it's very interesting when we look at these links between farming, when we look at wildlife habitat, and they're not always, you know, totally separate issues. So I'll just give the example from, from Malaysia, where we saw that the first emergence of Nipah virus was detected. And this was a really detrimental event. I think um, a lot of lessons for the world were learned from that, that event. You had intensive pig farming and you also had trees right by the uh, outside of the pig pens and bats would come to roost in those trees, they would eat the fruit, there was partially eaten fruit that likely dropped that had been contaminated by bats and then that resulted in infection with Nipah virus in pigs. The close proximity of the pigs, the conditions really allowed for the spread in pigs. It was really a serious situation and then that then spread on to human populations. So, you know, when we look at these links, they're, they're potentially very complex. They can involve different parts of the chain. For example, with Nipah virus, the situation is very different. If we look at Bangladesh, where the infection risk is actually from date palm sap and bats contaminating date palm sap and then people eating unboiled uh, sap, the, the date palm saps. These are zoonotic diseases, is that right? 
Yes, zoonotic diseases are those that are transmitted between humans and animals. So actually, there are a lot of diseases like that out there. So zoonotic diseases are not actually rare. Um, they're actually very common. What I want to just really you know, mention about zoonotic diseases is it's not a one-way street. So animals can also be impacted by human diseases. We've seen that with respiratory disease and great apes, for example. So this is not a one-way street, and we really need to be thinking about human health outcomes as well as animal health outcomes. So why bats, Catherine? Why are bats such an issue? So bats are a really interesting group of animals. So first of all, there are many bats. There are over 1,200 known species, probably more that are yet to be discovered. You know, because of that, uh, you have high uh, diversity also of potential pathogens. So there are high numbers of viruses, maybe relative to um, other taxonomic groups. Rodents also have a lot of viruses. People do come into contact with bats in a lot of different settings and really close contact. So you have people that are harvesting bat guano. This is, you know, bat feces, which are important for fertilizer in, in some areas. So it's a high value commodity in some communities. You have people that are hunting bats. So you can imagine the the, the potential for spillover, that close contact and, and sharing of, of blood, for example, people eating bats. You have ecotourism activities where people are going into caves and, you know, have bats overhead that may be urinating. It's not all about animals being used as food, is it? This is about our own built environment and urbanization. Urbanization and climate change are really important when we think about spillover risk reduction. So we see that there are some climate sensitive diseases, the ranges of certain species will change, for example. Uh, I think we really have to be aware of how we're changing these ecological conditions. And then with something like urbanization, you have people that may be encroaching into natural areas, for example. So say there is a bat cave, you know, let's just take this tan this tangible and, and example that really exists for a lot of populations. So say that, that there's a housing development proposed near a bat cave. We can expect that people then will have more contact with bats overhead, you know, bats flying out of the cave, looking for food at night. You know, epidemics are occurring every day in communities, and this is a big problem. So we, we only hear about the ones that you know, spread and, and often to, um, to, to the Northern Hemisphere. I think this is a big problem in terms of how we reprioritize. And, you know, there are big impacts globally from something like COVID-19. There are also very tangible and potentially long-lasting impacts from smaller epidemics. So we really need to de-risk in a way that is equitable, that, that prepares the system to, to be resilient. But I think if we can reduce risk on a day-to-day -day basis and serve the communities that may be facing these smaller epidemics, there can be a lot of benefits. And this is something that the World Bank is also keen to highlight. My name is uh, Frank Bert. I'm a veterinarian. At the World Bank, I'm a senior livestock specialist dealing with all sorts of uh, issues around uh, uh, livestock, including animal diseases, animal welfare, antimicrobial resistance, zoonosis and, um, and, and pandemic prevention. I'm leading a, a, a One Health initiative uh, for the bank. I asked Frank to explain a little bit more about the concept of One Health. It is very important that we clarify what we mean by One Health. One Health recognises that the health of people, the health of animals is interconnected and connected to uh, the health of ecosystems they, uh, they share. One Health is um, transdisciplinary, 
transsectorial, uh, cooperative, collaborative approach to uh, health of people, animals, and 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 ecosystems. So, uh, one health uh, before anything else is uh, is an approach. The World Bank has a new report about this, and it's clearly a fascinating and very important topic. Tell me a bit more about that. We we've been triggered by COVID nineteen as many of us have been in our in our uh, daily activities in our in our works uh, in in our lives as well we've been looking at this type of situation of pandemics from the very uh, uh, the very source and trying to understand how we got there with covid-19 but how we got there before that uh, with ebola with avian influenza with uh, um, so many diseases. And so instead of thinking about pandemics in terms of being responsive, being prepared to respond or responding, we've been thinking about those uh, uh, situations in, um, in different terms, in, a, in terms of how could we prevent those situations to happen at the source. What we've done is um, to look at uh, the trends of, of those outbreaks, over the past decades, uh, looking at uh, the accelerating pace of emerging infectious diseases. We've been looking at what drives this acceleration, what drives emerging infectious diseases to realize that it is mainly human activities. It's about uh, the way we use land, uh, the way we use our resources, the way our population grows. Instead, again, of thinking in terms of response, we've been uh, trying to think about this in terms of reducing risk and, and, and prevention. Explain a little bit about COVID-19. Has it altered the thinking on this? And has it maybe made people work in a more collaborative way? COVID-19, I think I think it is important to, to, to look at COVID-19 as one event in a in a series before COVID nineteen, we had a huge Ebola outbreak in the, in West Africa, but we had also the avian influenza crisis uh, in the early two thousand. We had the SARS crisis as well. We we've had so many. I think COVID nineteen came as a, as a reminder that there was an unfinished uh, job, and that we were again trapped in this cycle of uh, panic and neglect. I can speak for uh, the World Bank, and um, and clearly this call has been uh, taken extremely seriously, extremely uh, forcefully, and we thought that we we should finish that uh, that job, and uh, and that means shifting definitely and radically from a response based approach to uh, to a prevention based approach. And what about the increase in these kinds of diseases? Is that something that we should be worried about? Well, the vast majority of those outbreaks are coming from animals. In fact, two-thirds of infectious diseases in humans are coming from animals. And when it comes to new diseases, what we call the emerging infectious diseases, this uh, goes to 75%. For long periods of time, because of, uh, of, of the limited interactions between humans and, and, and animals, or interactions very stable in time, We've had um, a transfer of, of diseases, but with time to, um, to digest and absorb. What we see now is, uh, is an acceleration because of, uh, of the human footprint on 
the planet. We've, we've been analyzing series of, uh, of uh, databases with uh, events of, uh, of emerging infectious disease. And uh, what that shows is that the acceleration has been at an annual rate of uh, nearly 7%. So we are on a dangerous trend of acceleration of those uh, emerging infectious diseases. Wow, so there's a real sense of urgency here. There is a, a sense of, of urgency. We started our report in, um, in, uh, in 2020 in times of COVID-19. And since then, we've seen monkeypox resurfacing. We've seen uh, new outbreaks of, uh, of Ebola of uh, Lassa fever, and so the next uh, pandemic could really be on the horizon. I asked Catherine about Ebola and whether some of the outbreaks in recent memory were a kind of turning point for One Health. I think the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, I mean, it was such a tragic situation. And, and I think it really made people aware of these diseases will happen, you know, if we don't take steps to, to mitigate them. I think with Ebola, what was somewhat unique was the spread to other continents. So we were seeing the, the risks really changing in terms of a, a, the potential for global spread. We were also seeing that the, the health systems were not ready, you know, so the health systems were not in place. We saw that the anthropological piece was very important. So people were hesitant to take certain risk reduction measures to prevent spread. There were a lot of cultural considerations that needed to be taken into account. And even just how people were, were, were getting food, for example, there was messaging about not hunting certain species. I think there was a lot of confusion. I think that has really changed in some ways how we respond to epidemics in terms of uh, information dissemination, in terms of trusted information sources, uh, and that equity piece of who is impacted and what are the potential impacts outside of the health sector. We really saw that in a very um, tragic way in, in the Ebola epidemics. Let's hear now from one country which has first-hand experience of Ebola, Liberia. <laughs> What you can hear now are the sounds of livestock at somewhere called the Home of Dignity in Liberia. Let's hear more. Okay, so my name is Sompon Lamosier. I am a public servant. I had the opportunity to work for the World Bank project as a One Health coordinator, but I also managed two of the World Bank projects. On the private side, I am running a private institution called uh, the Home of Dignity Bureau to bring dignified care to people living with life-threatening conditions. We have livestock at the Home of Dignity. We also run aquaculture sites where we do aquaponics. Explain to me how the Home of Dignity works, what it is, and also how the idea of livestock feed into the, the One Health principles that you're talking about. When we don't care for the animals and provide them the support they need in terms of disease prevention, then obviously we are at risk because uh, what we've known over time is that a lot of the emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases are originating from the wild, but also to the domestic animals. 
And so if we don't care for the domestic animals, the vectors then come and then uh, take over the domestic animals. And once we don't treat them, we ourselves get infected. Added to that is that we are putting the entire public at risk. So we thought it was important to ensure that while we care for the poor uh, within our lo locality, we should also care for uh, the livestock themselves that the poor are using for their survival. So a lot of the work we do is to care for those livestock, but also care for people who are infected with infectious diseases. HIV, and of course, you know, HIV is, is, is a virus from, from the Y, and, and, but also those who live with other communicable conditions. Explain the relationship between livestock that you have and the local community. Oh, sure, Sarah, I'm sure a lot of people right now, as I speak to you, we have an average of 150 acres of land at the back of our site. And, and we are talking to the locals, the uh, uh, locals are using that forest to cut down trees and make charcoals, which is also going to be an effect when it comes to climate change. You know, the biodiversity, uh, the, the ecosystem is being destroyed. So they go to the place, they fare the wood, the charcoal, I mean, the, the trees, and then they make charcoal. They even go to the forest and hunt the, the wild animals for their survival. So there's a lot of things that we're trying to do to educate. And a lot of people say, what are you doing? What are you trying to achieve? This is important because if we don't do this, the, the, wild, the wild animals will run away. They won't be around. We will come in contact with them. And if they are carriers or any of the, the viruses, we put our community, our family at risk. There's a lot that we're trying to do uh, though it has challenges in terms of its financial, since we got established, it has been very difficult for, for uh, a lot of people don't support what we do. A lot of people don't understand that if to protect yourself, you must also protect your environment. So it's difficult, especially with people who don't have a lot of money and don't have a lot of options. Very difficult, surely. Uh, what you try to do is to develop an alternative livelihood support. For example, we thought uh, by going into fish farming or aquaculture, we give help to those who want to sell fish. Uh, instead of going down to hunt down the wild animals, you sell fish as a means of survival. We also thought for other families to be able to sell the birds. Uh, once we grow them and healthy, they go and then sell, you know, uh, from the poultry farm, they sell the birds, but also sell the eggs as a means of survival instead of destroying, you know, the forest. And tell me a little bit about Ebola and how Ebola maybe altered the thinking in Liberia about how to approach these kinds of infectious disease outbreaks. Uh, a lot of us was eating uh, what you call the bats. When people started realizing that the bats were gateway to, to a lot of the Ebola cases, and not just only bat, but, but also other, other species, uh, carriers of these, people then became very mindful. Of course, there's still what you call hesitancy in terms of eating all of these livestock. People still think what we see is not truth, and, and, and they still go into the forest and, and hunt the bat. Sompon speaking to me from the home of dignity in Liberia. Thank you. Back to Frank. 
I asked him to explain how we can start to build viable solutions to these hugely complex issues. We need to, uh, to care about our, our forests, we need to care about our farms, we need to care about our cities and, and, their, and their growth. It is um, economically um, extremely uh, attractive. There is a cost, of course, but this cost is very limited compared to the cost of preparedness or even more so to the cost of response. So it's not just about uh, preventing pandemics, but it's also about improving our, our food systems, having uh, better lives for the animals we grow, uh, better lives for the farmers. So there's a strong economic case here for looking at things in this joined up way. There's a very strong economic case indeed. It's, it's a very important point because this is um, something that we, we lose sight of far too, uh, far too often. We, we've been putting a, a price tag on uh, prevention, prevention in terms of, uh, of having uh, strong veterinary services and, uh, and animal health uh, systems in, uh, in, in countries, uh, reducing deforestation and improving conservation in areas where we are at risk of uh, spillover from, uh, from wildlife, improving on-farm biosecurity where we have uh, a very uh, uh, active and rapidly growing um, uh, livestock sector. And when we, when we, 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 we put these, uh, these costs all together, they come at less than a percent of the cost of responding to uh, a pandemic like uh, um, COVID-19 just considering the 2020 year. The economic uh, case is uh, really compelling. When we talk about prevention, Frank, what do we mean? So there are many ways we can uh, ensure prevention or, or uh, risk reduction. But first, we need to, uh, to figure out where the risk comes from. There is no one size fits all, and uh, we need to be careful in considering the context we, uh, we operate in. But if I take the case of uh, wildlife, for example, and risk uh, related to deforestation, forest uh, degradation or, or fragmentation, um, there is clearly uh, ways to reduce uh, deforestation or forest fragmentation, establishing buffer zones, for example, or, or establishing uh, uh, protected and conserved areas. But there are also work to be done with the communities in terms of communication and, and, and participatory practices, maybe providing people uh, options so that they don't need, uh, for example, to hunt and, um, and, and live um, out of uh, wild uh, species. I put that question about One Health and the sort of approaches that can help prevent issues and spread of disease to Catherine. If, if we take the example of um, ecotourism activities where disease has, has resulted from people going into caves, uh, we've seen with Marburg virus in Queen Elizabeth National Park, there were spillover events in tourists. And I think a really elegant solution was taken on that really created these safe viewing areas and you have this platform that's enclosed by glass. So you don't have the bats overhead, but you can see the bats flying in, in and out of the cave. The co-benefit there, of course, is that you don't have people actually going into that really sensitive ecosystem. So they're not degrading the cave. The, cat, the cave has other species than bats, as pythons um, and, and many other species. And so I think this elegant solution allowed the tourists to still experience this amazing ecosystem. The revenue from tourists is still there. 
solutions like this, we can really be very creative. That's a one-time infrastructure investment, but I think it shows the potential that we really can reduce risk in very practical and potentially low-cost ways. That sounds like a much better idea. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd like a, a cave with pythons and uh, and that. Um, And when it comes to the last two and a half years we've all lived through, do you think it's really sort of shone a light on this kind of One Health approach? I think the COVID-19 pandemic, I mean, it's been so tragic for everyone and in so many ways. I think the connection to environment, to animals is really more appreciated. I don't think that we will automatically do things differently. And that's my big concern. We need to invest in prevention. I think there's still a lot of need to really understand what prevention is. What When we talk about prevention at source, I don't think that's always intuitive. It's also something that can't be done by the health sector alone. So we need to be building up health systems. They do need to be prepared. If we have an outbreak, we need to be able to respond. But we're missing this really important piece of prevention at source. And that's not going to be the World Health Organization that can do that alone. We need to see the animal health sector, environmental health sector, the industries that drive risk. So extractive industries, logging, farming, you know, land use change, tourism, We need those stakeholders on board to really help de-risk their activities. And I think this is a huge opportunity that we can mobilize and we can do things in really practical ways that make a huge difference, but it won't happen automatically. Catherine, many thanks. Let's hear from Frank again. So do you think the message is getting across that things need to be considered in a more holistic way? I do believe so. There is a, there is silver lining coming with the, with COVID nineteen. I think we we should look also um, at um, our leaders. I'm thinking about uh, the G seven or or the G twenty, where in the declarations many references to uh, to One Health have been made. We've seen the UN agencies coming together. What we see also is um, WHO, that is a central piece in the in the global architecture. Um, opening up uh, uh, very uh, boldly to uh, to the One Health uh, concept. On the finance side of things, what we've seen also is um, is this uh, new financing mechanisms called by the G20 and coming into uh, reality uh, recently through the World Bank and, uh, and WHO collaboration. One Health is also um, a, a newly coined concept, but a very old perception, understanding of the word. And, uh, and so while we so, sort of rediscover One Health in, in traditional knowledge, indigenous knowledge, um, this uh, way of, of thinking, the links between humans, animals and ecosystems is, is uh, strongly rooted. So uh, it's sometimes very easy in communities to uh, approach things uh, through this uh, One Health uh, lens. And the last word comes from Sompon in Liberia, back at the home of dignity. A lot need to be done to ensure that we save our environment and save our source. It's clear that when it comes to the next potential pandemic, prevention is surely preferable to cure. That we need to consider our environment, our impact and footprint across the board, from housing to food systems to tourism. That if we don't, we are only harming ourselves. This has been the Table for 10 Billion podcast from the World Bank Group. I'm Sarah Trino, and we'll be back soon.